Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I am Bob. Hello. <laughs> I was channeling like a detective in New York City in like the 1930s. Oh, I really got like cowboy in the US Midwest in the 1870s. Okay, well, you know, same country, different time zone. Never mind. Um, <laughs> welcome to Bearback, the podcast where we navigate our lives together as a bear couple. And we explore the quirks of our different cultures. Indeed we do. I'm Ben and I'm British. And I'm Benja and I'm Argentinian. And this week, our penultimate episode of the series. We're almost there. We are focusing on Europe. Yes, we've looked at the stereotypes both our cultures have about the other, but how do we look at our European counterparts? Our European brothers and sisters, how do we look and what do we prejudge of them? And are those preconceptions true? Well, we'll find out a little bit later on. But first of all, it's time to delve into the postbag and it's bulging, baby. It's absolutely bulging. What do we have? Well, it's bulging because we've had an amazing message from the lovely Jack, uh, who's been in touch. And he was talking all about last week's episode, which was on language, particularly where mm-hmm. we looked at the etymology of words and words that are borrowed in English from Spanish and Spanish from English. And he says, a fun journey in language can be done through the colour orange. Oh. Now, hear this. It started as naranja, mm-hmm. obviously Spanish. Spanish, when the fruit went through France and it turned into un norange. Oh. Then it came to Britain as a norange. Okay. But like a lot of words, according to Jack, the word does a pronoun jump, hence why we get orange. So it loses the, the N. Basically. So basically, the word in English, orange, comes from the word in Spanish. Yes, but, and I think this is really interesting, the fruit came in 1300s, but the colour only came about in the 1500s. Hence why when we talk about robins, the bird, if you look at a robin's breast, it's clearly orange, but we refer to it as a red breast. Okay. Because the colour didn't exist until... The bird was coined. Okay, no, no, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean the colour didn't exist? Orange colour existed before the 15th century. Yeah, but I think it was just a shade of red. So we didn't have a word for it, is that what you're saying? We didn't invent a new colour in somewhere between the 13th and the 15th century. Yeah. No, we didn't invent a new colour, we just put a word to it. Well, whatever. The fruit came before the colour. Okay. So it's like chicken before egg. It was the fruit before the colour. Now, also due to oranges, and this is all from Jack, we had preservatives, not condoms. Uh, That's a little joke if you listened to last week's episode. (laughs) (laughs) If you know, you know. Now, the preservatives is why we use the Spanish word for citrus preserves. So marmalada is marmalade. Marmelada. Yeah. And... The Saxon Middle English word is what we used for all of this. Jams. Okay. 
So basically the same. That's probably one of the questions I had about the English language. Is there a difference between chams and marmalades? Yeah, marmalade comes from citrus preserves. Yeah, yeah. But what I mean is, is, is it just marmalade is just citrus? Yeah. So I can't have like a strawberry marmalade. I would have a strawberry jam. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Mm, you uh, learn something new every day. That's quite one of my old time questions that I never bothered to ask because I didn't care that much. Well, you need to be thanking Jack for that. Thank you, Jack. Actually, I've got a fun fact to add to this. The only rhyming word for orange in English is sporange. And sporange is an old botanical term for sporangium, the portion of a fern in which asexual spores are created. It sounds like a made-up word. No. You could also use blorange, but that's a proper noun. It's a mountain in southeast Wales. Go figure. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that Jack brought to the table this week, we talked obviously about COVID-19 related words in last week's episode. And Jack said that quarantine is a Spanish word. And originally, it comes from the Italian for 40, quarantina. And apparently, it's to do with Venice. And ships used to have to anchor for 40 days before coming to port. So the plague would die out on the boat and not come onto the mainland. Or Venice. Yeah. So in Spanish, quarentena. And in Spanish, 40, quarenta. There you are. Absolutely fascinating stuff. So thank you, Jack, for sharing all that with us. We do appreciate your input. But, Bab, we have a very full episode today. So, what have we been up to this week? Let's get to it. Well, indeed. All I'm going to say is the wedding that wasn't a wedding. I mean, it was something. It was something indeed. So, on Friday night, we went to a charity event, but it was actually the host's... Well, it was meant to be the host's wedding. So, a friend's sister's friend was engaged to be married, had booked the venue, everything was seemingly fine, and then the wedding was called off um, (laughs) earlier this year. But instead of wasting the venue, they kept the venue and they repurposed it as a charity event, which I thought was an absolutely fantastic idea. It is, because realistically what that meant is that basically we paid our fee, basically what, what she would have paid for a person attending the wedding... We paid it ourselves, so we covered the cost of the, of the wedding party, but most of it actually went to charity. Mm-hmm. But for all intents and purposes, it was like we were at a wedding. So we were welcomed by girls on stilts and a little fire show. Yeah, that was a little bit odd, because it wasn't particularly like a, like a circus theme or anything like that, was it? No, but it was just to get your juices flowing. Then we had, <laughs> we had a drinks reception... Yeah, and we definitely milked that drinks reception, didn't we? There was a photographer. And we definitely took, like, very US high school prom Yeah, photos. we did, didn't we? Well, I didn't realise they were free. If I'd have known that those photographs that were printed out were free... You would have done a photo shoot. <laughs> I'd have done a full-on... I'd have got my makeup done. I'd have, I'd have rang friends and family members to come down and be part of it. Because they were great photographer. Then we had a three-course meal. There was entertainment yeah there was a singer yeah and there was a dj and there was a dj yeah and more importantly there was lots of drama but it was a wedding basically yeah that thing it was a wedding and probably the good thing is that we were kind of like spectators because realistically because this was a friend's Sister. Sister's friend. <laughs> or something like that something like that um we were completely separated from the drama weren't we yeah we just watched Various arguments happen, people storming out, coming back in, 
people getting off with different people? Are they together? Oh, no, they're not together. Oh, yeah, they're together. Oh, no, she's with him. He's with her. It was brilliant. I wonder whether it was drama or whether we just we were just making it up in our heads. <laughs> Probably, knowing us. Yeah. But one thing that we definitely weren't making up was the in-memoriam section. Oh, God. That was... There was something really, really wrong about that. Not about the in-memoriam itself. So, basically... Basically, with the invitation, you got an invitation to, if you wanted, to send a photo of a loved one that had passed of cancer. And basically, they had like a rolling PowerPoint with the photos of uh, of the people who had passed away that all of the attendants sent. And obviously, the event was raising money for a cancer, cancer charity. Cancer charity. So it it kind of made sense in in, yeah. in that way. The problem is is that the immemorial was never turned off. So then at some point, of course, the DJ blasted music. So it was kind of like literally people slut dropping in front of the in-memoriam. Yeah, it did feel like we were dancing on people's graves. So that bit, I have to admit, I mean, we still did it. We kind of say that we thought, oh, no, I can't dance in in front of the in-memoriam. We still did it. Well, if a tune comes on that you love, you've got to dance. Exactly, but that bit was a uh, a little bit odd. Yeah, and also I remember earlier in the night when the lady from the cancer charity who was giving us a bit of a talk at the start of the night saying, you know, why our donations were really important. The gentleman who'd taken all the photographs used that opportune moment to print out all our photographs. And he was set up in the back of the same room where we were all in. So as this lady was explaining how, you know, funds raised from tonight would provide nurses and support and counselling, all you could hear in the background was... I think he had a dot matrix printer at the back. But, yeah, remember those like tape printers from the eighties? <laughs> yeah. They're gonna. But to be fair, she didn't miss a beat. She carried on. She's very professional. Very professional. The thing is, I wonder because I haven't been to a lot of uh, British weddings. I wonder why isn't this a business? What weddings that are not weddings? Yeah. It is, it is back in Argentina. Is it? Yeah, the thing is, weddings in Argentina, if you heard our episode on weddings. Four weddings and a festival. Listen back at your convenience. Available on Spotify, iTunes, podcast, whatever you <laughs> listen to podcasts on. Amazon, Google. The list is endless. We're in all the right places. Anyway, going back to the weddings in Argentina. So, um, if you heard that episode... Weddings in Argentina are very characteristic. The type of music that you hear, um, that you listen to in weddings, is very, very wedding music. The meal is very wedding meal. The whole set out is very, very characteristic of weddings. So there are companies now, and there has been for a few years, that they do basically fake weddings. And they do have a bride and a groom. It's sort of like an immersive theatre type thing. So basically you your space and you have the whole wedding experience it's just that no one actually gets married you just have the ceremony and the party but who would you go with is it like entire families that go to these things or is it like you go with a group of mates and book one table and there are other friends and other families on other tables how how does it work so it's it's basically like a nightclub you buy your space and you probably would go with your friends and you would probably get enough people to buy a full table. So a full table will sit eight or ten people. So you probably get eight or ten people 
and you all go together as friends and you have this massive, this excellent wedding experience. And of course, there's souvenirs. Is it? Yeah, because remember that in weddings you have the the bouquet that the bride um, throws, but also the groom uh, throws like a, a bottle of whiskey. Well, not an actual bottle. He throws the empty box. So you get the possibility of getting goodies out of it. Oh, it's a whole experience. Upsell, upsell, upsell. I think we need to bring this to the UK. I think... People in the UK would go crazy for it. Think about how now everybody wants to go, they want to go to a nice brunch, a nice bottomless brunch. This could be the new bottomless brunch, the wedding experience. Yes, yeah. and you have the party favours, you have everything. How do you register an idea? Mm, we're putting it out on the podcast. I, I think that she has held up. Well, I think the fact that we've mentioned it on the podcast means that our idea is out there. We've cemented it. I would suggest that that is akin to copyright. So, guys, watch this space. Check out our socials because we're going to be selling fake wedding tickets sometime soon. Maybe. Watch this space. Well, welcome back, everybody. Hiya. <laughs> we didn't go anywhere. We just had that little ditty. I mean, we were still, like, literally sitting here. <laughs> yeah, just in silence yeah. for, like, 15 seconds. Just a chance to recuperate and uh, recharge our batteries ahead of the main section. And today we're talking all about Europe. Now, I have to give a massive shout-out to listener Chris. Hiya. Hiya, Chris. And he has found a map of Europe. The map of Europe, instead of having the countries, instead of having the names of all the countries that are in Europe, it has phrases written over the land masses saying what Latin American people, albeit back in 2012, because that's when the survey was done, but what Latin American people think about the nationalities that live in those countries. And Chris says, since you have an expert, this might be of interest. I presume he means you rather than me. Uh, I would presume so. (laughs) So, Chris, thank you so much for sending that in. And we looked at the map and we thought, do you know what? We've talked a lot about the stereotypes that, you know, my culture, British, thinks of your culture, Argentinian, and vice versa. What does other cultures think of our European counterparts? So, I guess, really, this is a, a really cool way of us looking at, you know, those stereotypes that exist you know, and kind of debating whether we think that there's any mileage in them. So it has to be said that it's a very cool way, but also we need to put out a very serious disclaimer here. (laughs) The map that we are going to be talking about represents uh, the views of the whole of Latin America on Europe back in 2012. However, I feel that some of it is unfair. Some of it is actually not real as well some of it can be a little bit a little bit offensive as well for a person from that particular country so we're going to try and take the humor route here and we're going to basically just clarify that it doesn't represent our own personal views on any of these countries I'm glad you said that. I feel I feel like you said that to you know to, to hold the lawyers at bay. You know, suddenly suddenly like people in Switzerland are, are, are ringing their lawyers back saying it's all right, it's all right. You you don't need to be on standby now, Ben Ben Her. Uh, you know, it's not their opinion. It's like when you when you go on Twitter and it's like views not my own. 
Yeah, I know, but you know the thing is, is um, I have to admit that when I looked at that map, there was a few of them that I actually thought, well, what does it mean? And again, um, you have to remember that Latin America is massive, so I'm Argentinian, so I'm a little bit of Latin America. Latin America is huge. So there's a lot of different views that all of those different countries are going to have of sure, Europe. Sure, but I'm. Mean, let's be honest, as this podcast goes, you are our Latin American correspondent, aren't you? Okay. <laughs> now, before we get into it, we've posted the map on all our socials, so you can find it on at barebackpodcast on Instagram. You can find it as well on at barebackpod on Twitter. Or you can go onto Facebook, just search for us, bareback, scroll down a little bit, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, and you'll find the map. So, I'm going to divide this map in a couple of different sections, if you like. Okay. So, the first one is going to be people references. So, when we hear about a country, and we automatically associate it with a person, real or not. So, for example, if you look at the map, when you look at the UK, what does it say there? Lady Diana. Lady Diana, Lady D, exactly. And I think that this is very generational as well. I think the people who responded that survey are from my generation. They're not people who are in their 20s right now, by the way. My generation and onwards, whenever you hear about the UK, the first thing that comes to mind is Lady D. So, as a counterpoint to Lady Di, for us, Lady D, because it's D-I, so you spell it in Spanish, D. And just to kind of understand that a little bit more, how big was she in Latin America? Oh, she was massive. No one cared about the royal family. Everyone knew and cared about Lady D. Just because of, of, of who she was, where she came from, or what she did, or how she used her platform? I think that a little bit of everything. I think that she was very, very famous in Latin America, first of all, for being a controversial figure that stood up to the British monarchy or royalty and sort of successfully stood her ground against someone or a bunch of an institution that people wouldn't think anyone could stand up against. And also, it's about her charity work. I think we've all seen her um, sort of walk in the minefields and all of the um, work that she did with uh, AIDS patients. And I think all of those images resonated very, very vividly in South America and in the whole of Latin America. I think she was actually really, really loved in Latin America. But in counterpoint to that... So, for example, if we think about Hungary, instead of thinking of something very benevolent like Lady Di, we associate Hungary with Attila. Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun. Okay, that's interesting. That's the first things that come to mind, Attila the Hun. Now, now that I'm in, I'm in the UK, I kind of like the idea that it's Attila the Hun and Attila the Hun, you know, like a, a little bit of prosexy and... <laughs> I can imagine Attila having, like, a brunch with the girlies. Yeah, not going on a military campaign, just going on hollybobs. Yeah, just going on hollybobs. But yeah, so for whatever reason, we associate Hungary with Attila. Nothing else. What do I associate with Hungary? Budapest? Or Budapest, I think is how you pronounce it. I think we've been pronouncing it wrong for, for many years. Goulash. I love a goulash. Oh, I do like goulash. Nice stew, spiced with a bit of paprika. And unfortunately, anti-LGBTQ laws as well. Yeah, as well. 
hopefully that will change and we can associate it. But I think that in 2012 we associated uh, Hungary with Attila. In Latin America in 2021, probably that hasn't changed. We would still associate Hungary with Attila the Hun. But I mean, I, I found the people themselves to be extremely hospitable when I visited. I went to one of the spas in Budapest and had a very, very strenuous massage from a quite large lady. But that's what you expect. That's what you want from a Hungarian massage, don't you? I mean, she really bashed me around. Like, you know, I kind of left not really knowing what had happened to me. I did remember, because I was thinking about, well, you were talking about Hungary. I was thinking about what do I remember about Hungary? And they've got a beautiful metro system. It's one of the oldest in the world. I think it's second oldest to London's underground. But there was, we had a lot of hassle on the underground from homeless people and beggars. And I remember saying to my friend, I was like, look, the next person that comes and asks us for money, let's just talk to them in a, in a fake language and pretend that we can't understand. So somebody tapped us on the shoulder and I turned around and went, blah, 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 blah. Again, very childish, very juvenile, not probably mm-hmm. the best way to handle it. But, you know, I was quite young at the time. Anyway, it turned out that it wasn't a beggar or, or anyone who wanted anything from us. It was uh, a ticket inspector. Okay. Did you have your ticket? We had the wrong ticket. <laughs> so subsequently, we were marched to an ATM to withdraw some money to pay our fine. It wasn't a lot of money, but, you know, we were very poor students at the time, interrailing around Europe. So, yeah, it was... Uh, so I'll never forget that. So now, whenever anybody stops me and asks me for something, I will give them my undivided attention mm-hmm. because I think it was a bit of karma coming to bite me in the bottom. What goes around comes around. Absolutely. And then getting a little bit away from real people, when we think about Switzerland, we think about Heidi. Oh, wasn't she in the Sugar Babes? Mm, nah. Who was Heidi? Heidi was like a, a manga. It was a Japanese cartoon from the 80s. Oh. I don't know if it aired here. It was called Heidi, Girl of the Alps. Oh, wow. And it's basically this very young girl, probably about five or six, that goes to live in the mountain with uh, her grandfather. Because apparently, I don't know, the, the story is really tragic. It's like the parents died when she was one year old. And then her aunt that was taking care of her got a job in Frankfurt, but she couldn't take care of uh, Heidi. So basically she kind of dumped Heidi in the middle of the Alps, in the middle of the mountains with her grandfather, who may or may not have killed the man years earlier. This sounds a bit brutal. Um, But it was a really, really nice cartoon. It followed her adventures. In uh, basically in the Alps, and it was basically her, her grandfather, and sheep, pretty much. So I don't, I can't remember the story other than. I don't that. remember seeing many sheep when I went to Switzerland. I saw a few cows. I think that the British perception of the Swiss, and actually I've verified this because if you do Google.co.uk, you know the autocomplete. If you do why is Switzerland so dot 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 the number one thing that comes up is rich. And I think that's what we associate with Mm -hmm. the Swiss. And I have to say, having visited Switzerland, it is so expensive. And this is like ingrained in my memory that two sandwiches and two bottles of Coke came to £18 when I visited Switzerland. And it was only a few years ago. It was just before we met. And I remember as well, even the buskers in Switzerland Mm -hmm. are classy. Like, 
it's not just like one man with a guitar. It's like a full-on string quartet in the middle of the high street. Ooh, it's very fancy, indeed. Absolutely, absolutely. But see, we know about the fancy things, but and again, that's why I think this map has been done with people of my generation. We actually do associate it with Heidi immediately. The 80s cartoon. Not chocolate. Not chocolate, not banks, not sort of neutral during the wars. Heidi. Like frolicking in the Alps with her animals and her grandfather. Who may or may not have murdered someone. Who may or may not have murdered someone. That's a lot. I know, I know. But you know what the thing is? That's the beauty of these surveys, isn't it? Is that you don't really know what people actually are going to say and they might surprise you. Some of them um, are not really that surprising. Of course, if you think about Spain, most of Latin America think about like the motherland. But it's kind of like the mother that you don't have a good relationship with. <laughs> okay. You know, the, the whole thing about colonization, Latin America, Latin America in the past 15, 20 years have really, really turned against the uh, sort of the effects and the icons of colonization. So, for example, Columbus arrived to the American continent on the 12th of October. So, the 12th of October is a bank holiday all over Latin America. And used to be celebrated uh, as the day of the discovery of the continent. And that was the name, at least in Argentina, the name of the bank holiday was the day of discovery of uh, of America. Now, all that has shifted, not only because we know that he didn't actually discover it, that Vikings, that a lot of, uh, a lot of different societies have gone to the American continent way before Columbus. And wasn't he trying to get to India anyway? Yeah, as well. So. It, was a, it was a mistake that he got there. <laughs> But now, for example, is race is about is about the day of race. So it's about sort of celebrating diversity, racial ethnicities all through the continent, and celebrating the indigenous population as well. So Latin America has really, really turned on on those colonization icons and iconographies. So that's why Spain is kind of motherland, but mm, I don't like it that much. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of the former colonies of Britain think the same. It's, you know, it's kind of acknowledging that history, but actually reminding yourself that we live in a different time in a different period now, where as much as we want to look back and remember things through those kind of rose-tinted glasses, there was lots of things that were terrible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're all trying to collectively move on and look towards a, a new future where... You know, we all kind of work together, kind of remember the past, acknowledge that, but let's build something even better together. Yeah, and it's about turning the past into something that it it brings hope and it brings joy. Some others are what you expect, which are very, very kind of close-minded, to be fair. If you look at France, what does it say in France? Just Paris. Just Paris. So basically, our impression of France, as Latin Americans, is basically that nothing exists outside of Paris. It's quite interesting. People are around the world. I don't think it's just a Latin American thing. Other cultures are obsessed with Paris, to the point where in Japan, there is actually a Paris syndrome. And basically, it's young Japanese people, particularly girls, who have this kind of, again, rose-tinted vision of what Paris is like. And they grow up and they grow up and they see it in films, they see it in cartoons Mm -hmm. and all kinds of things. And they want to go to Paris. And then when they get to Paris and realise that it stinks, there's shit everywhere, lots of graffiti, they have like an instant depression. Yeah, I can very much see why. And it's called Paris syndrome. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Paris. Paris is beautiful in parts, but there are parts of it that, you know, 
you don't really want to go. And don't worry, the, the few times that I've been to Paris, I've had a great time, but I have found it very dirty. Mm. I have found it a lot of areas not as nice. I think probably the only thing that I can say about Paris is that the Eiffel Tower is just as big as you imagine it. Because around the world, you know that places around the world, landmarks around the world, are disappointing. So when you first come to London, you realise that actually the Big Ben is not as tall as you th- as you thought it would. Mm-hmm. And the same with uh, the Statue of Liberty in New York. You kind of look at it and say, mm, I thought it was bigger. <laughs> so everything is kind of disappointing when it comes to landmark. The Eiffel Tower lives up to the expectation. Mm. It is just as big as I imagined it to be. See, for me, it was the Acropolis in Athens. That blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. I, I think because I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I think because of where it is on top of a hill, for me, that's the one that, you know, I will always say that was much greater and much bigger than what I was expecting. I think with France, though, it's really... I mean, we could do a whole podcast about what the British stereotypes are of France. We certainly have a love-hate relationship. We, we, you know, historically, we are rivals, or we have been rivals, and lots of English jokes. The French are always the butt, you know. An Englishman and a Frenchman walk into a bar, blah, blah, blah. There's just so many nicknames that we've given the French. But I think there's something about... In Britain, we show affection through humour. So I don't know if that's like a a kind of turn that around to make it a positive thing. But we certainly need each other. I mean, we've got better beer than them, but they are so much more chic. I mean, can we just talk for one second about the uniforms that the the police wear? Oh, God. It's not just the uniforms. I'm sorry, and I'm going to slack off the British here. Do it. Britain does not know how to properly make trousers. Okay. It makes every British person look like they have no ass. <laughs> Which is not true. Trust me, I verified. <laughs> not true. But the trousers, just they're ill-fitting in the bum. Go to France. It's not just the police. It's not just the military. Look at trousers. Trousers fit bums perfectly. They enhance. They highlight the well-made. Well, do you know what I'm going to do after we've li- recorded this podcast? I'm going to go and look online and see if there's a French civil servant <laughs> a calendar for next year, because that's going to be your Christmas present. But I mean, all in all, I think if we look at the bottom line, the British love the French and we love France. It's the second most popular holiday destination after Spain. So they must be doing something right and we want a part of it. There must be. But again, in Latin America, and I think, to be fair, that's the part where I think it's not necessarily as fair. When you think about France in Latin America, you automatically think about Paris. It's like it's like nothing else exists about France. However, that being said, when I moved here in the uh, to the UK, I still have people say, "Oh yeah, I really want to go and visit you. I'll let you know when I'm in London." Yeah, well, good luck because I'm not going to be in London because I don't live in London. <laughs> then make sure that you let me know. And that's the thing, it's not just with France. I think that a lot of times when a lot of people think about the UK and think about London and that's it. I acknowledge our image about France. I think it's more widespread. I don't think it's just about France. And there's so many other amazing cities in France as well. If, you, if you're thinking about urban dwellings, you know, I, I've had fantastic weekends in Toulouse, Moulins. You know, th- there are so many great places there to visit. You know, Paris, just like London... They are not 
all that that country is. They're great and they have some amazing things. And if you are going to those countries, you know, for the first time, you've mm-hmm. got to do the capital, you've got to do London, you've got to do Paris, you've got to do Berlin, you've got to do Buenos Aires, you know. But I think to base a whole country on its capital is a little bit short-sighted. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's like thinking, like apparently Latin Americans do, that all you can see in Iceland is ice. I mean, there's a lot of ice there. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ice, but it's not just that. But fun fact about sort of the translation of countries. So so Iceland is called Iceland because of the glaciers. It was a guy that saw all of the glaciers and named it Iceland. However, if you translate Iceland in Spanish, so the name of the country in Spanish is Islandia, which actually translates to land of the island. <laughs> okay. So, realistically, it sounds similar, Iceland, Islandia, but they actually have very different meanings. And what about the country Ireland? What's that in Spanish? Well, Ireland. Ireland, yeah. Irlanda. So, just Ireland? Yeah, but it, and that's the thing, it just, Irlanda is just the name of the country. I don't, I, I don't know the etymology of it, but I don't think it refers to anything other than just translated of Ireland. But for whatever reason, Iceland, which refers to ice is translated as Islandia, Isla, which is island in Spanish. I mean, it's a stunning country, and the ice is but one of the one of the attractions. <laughs> Although I remember going to a burger chain in when I visited Iceland called Aktu Taktu, and it's basically their equivalent of McDonald's. I think McDonald's tried to get into Iceland, but people are like, no, we've got our own mm-hmm. version, it's better here. So McDonald's swiftly left. Anyway, I was looking at the menu and it was kind of, you know, kind of obvious. Everyone speaks really good English there. So I said to the, um, I said to the, the server behind the counter, well, I understand what that is and what's in it, but I said, there's an ingredient here that I don't understand. And she said, oh, it's cinnamon. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. I said, but what's cinnamon? And she went, well, it's cinnamon. And I said, yeah, but what is it? And she went, cinnamon. And I said, yeah, 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 but what, what is it? Is it, a, is it a, an ingredient? Is it a flavour? Is it a spice? Is it a sauce? Is it cinnamon? It's cinnamon. And th- I mean, this went on for about three or four minutes. And all she kept saying was cinnamon. I still to this day do not know what it was. But I had the burger and it was very nice. And it had cinnamon in. But I don't know what that is. Okay, if someone is listening in Iceland, let us know what cinnamon is. But the, I mean, the cuisine of Iceland is, is off the sky. I had whale meat in Iceland. And it was kind of like a fishy steak, really, was whale meat. But the thing that I remember the most, apart from the burger and the whale meat and the stunning natural beauty, was that I tried hakal. What? Hakal. It's putrefied shark meat. Ooh. I mean, if, if it's already called putrefied, it doesn't sound nice. The shark meat that they typically eat in Iceland is poisonous until it's properly fermented. Okay. But the shark meat is kind of fermented in its own urine because sharks excrete urine out of their skin. So they ferment it basically in its own urine. You make it sound so appetising. But it's sold everywhere in Iceland and I saw little kids eating it like crisps. So I brought some back to the UK and kind of prepared myself for a bit of an onslaught. I mean, it's ammonia-rich 
it stinks when you open it. I was already gagging before I'd even tasted it. And even when I pinched my nose and tried to eat it, it was one of the most disgusting things I'd ever eaten. But not only that, the house stank of ammonia. And I'm kidding you not, for about two weeks. Even though I threw it in the bin outside, I got about 12 million cans of Ambipure and sprayed them around the house. The smell stayed forever. I mean, are you sure you went banked or something like that? No, 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 no. It's definitely Hakal. It's definitely the right one. I mean, it's just, it's an, you know, when people talk about an acquired taste, this is like acquired taste to the extreme. But yeah, there's a video, if you want to see it, of me eating it online somewhere. And I'm literally gagging. I mean, the actual taste of the meat itself is not that bad, but the smell and the aroma, it's, oh, yeah. even thinking about it now, what? There's certain things that I would like to try, certain things that, mm, no, I'm not interested. And to be honest, you're not making it sound like really appealing, this one. I mean, we're talking about putrefied meat in its own urine. So, mm, I think I'll pass for this one. So, what are the other extreme ones on the map, then? Well, the thing is, the extreme ones is, for example, all of the Nordic ones, but, you know, but particularly sort of Norway, is kind of like frozen brains. It's, I mean, Latin America, for the most part, is relatively warm. So the idea of Norway is just imagine having an ice cream brain freeze and extend it for the whole of the day. And that's <laughs> what we think of Norway. Well, fun fact for Norway, tied with Italy, Sweden and Netherlands, according to YouGov, Norway is Britain's sixth favourite country. Okay, so based on? What British people like. Of what they think. Yeah. So, it, and how many people, bit, how many British people visit Norway? Probably not that many. But you have to remember that British people also voted the United Kingdom as their fourth favourite country. So, <laughs> it kind of shows you where we're at as a nation, doesn't it? Well, but the thing is, if it's based on your opinion of the country, rather than knowing the country, then it's exactly what we're doing now, isn't it? Is you're basing it on the preconceptions that you have of yeah. those countries. Yeah. Well, New Zealand's number one. And I, I imagine that not that many British people have been to New Zealand just because of how far it is. And then the other extreme as well is when you relate it to, uh, to yourself. So when you think about Belarus, what do we think? We think that it is basically the European Cuba. Well, I mean, it has been described as Europe's last dictatorship. Yeah, and it's kind of like a very sort of communist-oriented, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, they have strong ties with Russia still. And, you know, I've been to Belarus. So I went with a really good friend of mine. And we decided that we were going to go away on holiday for a week before Christmas. I said, let's go somewhere. Let's do our Christmas shopping. And as you know, I want to visit all countries in Europe before I'm 40. Mm -hmm. And Belarus was one of those countries. So I said, oh, yeah, we'll do our Christmas shopping. She was like, where is this country? I said, oh, don't worry about that. Mere details. Anyway, we went and had a fantastic week. And I know all the problems that they've had over, you know, the past couple of years has kind of tainted people's, you know, view of the country. But actually, the people themselves were just absolutely wonderful, and we had the best time. And hopefully, they'll get through what's been going on, and they come out the other side of it as a stronger nation. But I, re I remember we got off the plane in Minsk, the capital, and we got a taxi to the... We'd got an Airbnb, and I walked into this Airbnb, and there was a little lady that welcomed us on the door. 
and then behind was her massive husband like he was clearly like ex-army and she invited us in and there was this overbearing wallpaper there was silk flowers and an obligatory teardrop chandelier i mean the interior design was described as modern on airbnb doesn't sound like it it was almost as outlandish as the host perm basically (laughs) so it was modern at some point in time yeah yeah modern in the past But the combination of the aesthetics of the apartment and the host's hairstyle, it all collided. And I just thought, I'm going to love this country. And I did. I absolutely loved it. And we went down, when they'd left and we kind of settled into the apartment, we went downstairs, there was a little supermarket, and we bought what's known as Soviet champagne. And they used to make it when it was part of the USSR. Mm -hmm. It's not real champagne. It's fake champagne. It's made, you know, in that part of the world. It's never seen France. And we just sat on the balcony and looked out over this beautiful city and got really really drunk because it's quite easy to get drunk on soviet champagne but there were so many good things about belarus like in brest which is not far from the polish border they have a guy called victor victor kiris duke his name is and he is europe's last lamplighter and every night he lights by hand 17 kerosene lights along the high street. And it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Were they described as modern? (laughs) No, they weren't described as modern. But I mean, a lot of the country, you know, we're talking about lights, a lot of the country operated in the dark. Like, we went to this art gallery, and the lights would come on as we went into each room, presumably to save costs on electricity. Energy efficient. But there was somebody sat in each of these rooms. Oh, in the dark? you know, as a kind of moderator or security guard or whatever, they were literally sat in the dark until we walked in and then the light came on and, you know, one of the women frantically got out her mobile phone and texting all her friends back because she wasn't in the dark anymore or was reading. But literally, as soon as we left the room, the lights then went out again and they were like... It was like a game show contestant that had been eliminated. I mean, it's scary. It's like you go into a dark room, it lights up and suddenly there's someone there. But the babushkas, which is what you call the you know, a kind of older lady in, mm-hmm. in that part of the world. They well, were famously babushka in Russia and means grandmother. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they were just amazing. Like, we went to the museum for the Great War, which is what they refer to the Second World War in that part of the world. And there was kind of like a vague way of walking around the museum. But these babushkas, we would walk around the museum the way that they wanted us to walk around the museum. So if we tried to get into one area before we'd seen another area of the museum, they would literally like hold their hands out and stop us. You know, like we were trying to cross a road or something. And then they'd make us go into one room. And then as soon as we came out of that room, they'd then say that we could go into the next section. They were, you know, we talk about gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers. But yeah, I mean, it was very cheap. We had some great food. And we saw some amazing things. But yeah, I suppose, you know, technically, you know, the guy there has been in charge for goodness knows how many years. So I can see why there is a a Cuba comparison. But certainly on the ground, it didn't feel like we were in a communist country. It felt like there was communist-esque things about it. And there was clearly, you know, a legacy of, of some of those darker days in the USSR. But you could feel the former Soviet. Yeah, but we could also feel the future as well. That's nice. One of the things that differentiates Latin American culture from a formerly Soviet culture, surely, is dance, or the idea of dance. I'm sure they dance in Soviet countries, <laughs> but it's that sort of idea and public element of dance. So in this map, a lot of the elements that you, a lot of the comparisons that you can see there are based on dance. So basically, Germany is all work, no dance. 
Oh. Hmm. Italy is all drama, no dance. <laughs> Greece is all crisis, no dance. <laughs> then you have places where there is dance. So Turkey is Shakira dance. Absolutely. I mean, you love a little bit of a belly dance, don't you? Absolutely. Do one right now, actually. Exactly. And if you like belly dance, Czech Republic is beer belly dance. <laughs> Well, I'm also doing that as well. Exactly. <laughs> to be fair, I do like a, a good Czech beer. Well, I like Czech beer so much that when I went to the Czech Republic, I actually got thrown out of a brewery. Why? What did you I do? I got drunk. Oh. <laughs> so I was with two of my closest friends and we went into railing and we stopped off at a town not far from the capital. And we went round a brewery, but they kept giving us free beer as we were going around. And the tour was actually quite dull. And we went round one corner and I was like, oh, look over there. It's like, that's where they're actually making the beer, not this kind of like fake brewery bit that we'd seen. And I was like, that's where they're actually making the beer, not just the bit for the tourists. So we kind of walked along to investigate. And yes, two burly security guards caught up with us and, and escorted us off site because we basically left the tour and gone rogue. To be fair, I believe that you have a tendency to get... You, you have a tendency to want to go to a lot of places and then get bored whilst you're in them. So you kind of digress and start going off route, off topic. You, do, you definitely do that a lot. So I very much believe this story. Yeah, but imagine that and then give me five pints as well. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. To be fair, the thing is, I like Czech beer, but actually, the thing that I enjoyed the most about Prague particularly was the absinthe bars. No, I didn't go to those. Oh, they're so bosh. The whole drinking absinthe, is, there's the whole equipment around it. I, I love that type of culture. It's full of shit, but I love it. Again, I, ooh, absinthe. Uh, I mean, I, I've had a lot of sore heads from absinthe. I mean, it's not something you can have a lot. And that's the thing about these bars. It's quite expensive. It's not really cheap. But you can sit there and have all of these absinthe and they have all of the, like, the colanders and all of the different implements where kind of the absinthe drips and you have some fire that is sort of melting the sugar that falls into the absinthe. It's absolutely amazing. Oh, I thought you just downed it. No. that Well, you do. And that's how you get the headaches. <laughs> I was obviously doing it wrong all along. <laughs> I mean... It's quite interesting you're talking about Germany. Again, it's like one of those things where we could do a whole episode on what British people think about the Germans and vice versa, especially given, you know, historic rivalries. That, you know, when I was growing up, lots of people used to say, oh, German people, they're always the first to put the towels down at a holiday resort to reserve their places. Oh, I've heard that. I haven't experienced it, but I've heard that. I've never experienced it, and anyone I've ever spoken to about this, not that it's something that comes up in conversation a lot, but I think it's a myth, because no one I've ever spoken to has said that that actually happens. One thing that does happen, though, that we were told a lot about when we were kids, was that in Germany, you can't wash your car on a Sunday. Is that like law? Yeah, it was law. I think they've changed it now, and I think you can wash your car in the afternoon. It was something about not eating into church time, and also, I think you can't use products. So I think you can't get, like, the detergents going into the mm-hmm. into the sewer, or something like that. To be fair, the thing with Germany is, um, when I went to Berlin in 2012... I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing. I think that I, I struggled with the trains and the metro. We were staying in a hostel in East Berlin, so we needed to take a train and then the metro into um, into the western side. 
I never knew whether I had the right ticket, whether I needed a different ticket to get from the um, from the metro in, uh, onto the train. And it was an urban train. It wasn't a train like a, um, a long distance or anything. It's just that it wasn't underground. But I didn't know if I had to do it. I didn't know if I was validating the... Um, the ticket correctly i was never stopped by a guard and famously there's a lot of like civilian guards in the metro in berlin but i never knew i I think that if i go again i I still would not know how to take public transport there i think germany is notorious for that i mean it's a very i guess people would think of germans as being efficient and you know in terms of technology you know if you're going to buy a car like people you know hold up some of the German brands are some of the best, yeah. you know, in terms of technology. But I remember buying train tickets in Germany was really quite stressful because there's so many different types. You don't just buy one ticket. It's like, how many of you are travelling? What time of day are you travelling? Is it peak? Is it off-peak? Is it super off-peak? Is it? And it's, you know, it's just a minefield of information. I kind of feel like you need to be greeted by somebody at the airport or wherever your point of disembarkation is and somebody's there to explain to you all the different options that you have in buying public transport tickets in Germany. Or maybe just do what I didn't do and research. <laughs> yeah, or just do a bit of research. Just do a bit of Googling. <laughs> that works too. But just as well as someone there doing it for you. <laughs> Because it is an amazing... I mean, I remember we went to a nightclub for my brother's stag do. We went to Germany, to Munich. And the trains were still running at 2, 3 in the morning. I mean, it, the public transport system that they have over there is just exceptional. But yeah, just knowing what kind of ticket you need to use it is a hurdle that, you know, I think we all as um, non-Germans struggle with. And you also mentioned Italy as well. I dated uh, an Italian for seven years Obviously, no longer dating that Italian. So the all drama, no dancing stereotype, I can (laughs) confirm to some extent. Certainly their hand gestures are true. They drive crazy and they love coffee. So The thing is, you say they drive crazy, do they? Or they, they just understand each other? Well, you say that, but I was in the car with someone in Italy and they refused to put on their seatbelt. And you know in modern cars, when you refuse to put on your seatbelt, it bleeps. Yeah. And he refused to put on his seatbelt so much that we had to sit in the car for half an hour listening to the bleep sound rather than him just putting the the seatbelt in place. Like, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And yeah, of course, he was driving very erratically as we were going to wherever we were going. I just think that there's order in chaos. And I've driven in many different countries. And I can say that every country drives differently, but every country drives bad differently it's just that every country is different the rules that are broken okay so how do we drive badly differently in the uk Mm, so you know what i feel britain's best kept secret is the left lane on the motorways okay no one uses it i've seen i've gone on the left lane and go in relatively slowly when there's traffic, 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, whilst all of the cars are all plunging on into the right lane, and they're all stopped, and I just keep going. No one on the left lane. <laughs> and everybody in those other two lanes are, like, cursing you. Exactly, because I'm underpassing, but they're all stopped there. And also, for example, the part that I absolutely hate... Oh, she's going for it I'm now. going for it now, yeah. <laughs> absolutely hate people in this country do not understand the difference between your high beams and your low beams (laughs) how many times you're on an a road someone coming forward 
And they just don't care. They just leave the high beam thrown on. And they just really, really don't care. Well, you know, it gets very dark in this country. We have lots of dark roads. Yeah, but when someone comes, you lower your beams. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I agree. People should lower their beams. I think maybe we should start a low beam campaign. If you are out and about and you happen to be driving on the same road as Ben Hur, lower your beams. Yeah. Do us all a favour. But... <laughs> talking about driving you do have <laughs> there's one thing that i want to talk about now and you have <laughs> sorry it's, i don't know why i'm laughing are we really gonna have that conversation you know what i'm gonna say don't you mm, i think i know what i'm going to say about the windscreen wipers oh no i was gonna think i was thinking about something different what were you thinking about i was gonna criticize you driving why what you're going to criticise my driving? Yeah, and you know it. We've had this conversation. Right. Ben is the worst driver ever. He's the one that you hate. I'm not the worst driver no. ever. Can I mean, just... <laughs> that's like... That's really upset me, actually. To be fair, I, I, I think the statement is wrong. You're not a bad driver. You're actually a very good driver. Thank you. Can I have that in writing, no, please? No. But the thing is, you are the driver that everyone else absolutely hates in the motorway. Fake news. So, Ben is the driver who is going to be driving, doing 60 on the right lane, with the not just the left lane, the left and the middle lane completely empty, so he could move. And he won't move if someone behind him is trying to overpass him. And the moment they decide to underpass him, because Ben won't move, what Ben does is he accelerates... And don't let them underpass you until you've reached another car in the middle lane. <laughs> so basically, they have to get back behind you. And the moment they do that, you stop accelerating and you go back to doing 60. <laughs> because I've earned that place. I've earned the place to be in front. And I don't want somebody right on my ass in a motorway situation. Let them underpass you or move out of the way <laughs> that you very, very much had the space Why for. Why should I? I was ahead of them. Let me stay there. I want to be first. See, you're the driver that everyone oh, hates no. in the motorway. I feel like I feel like you've exposed me, and I'm going to get loads of hate mail now. But uh, it's true. It's true. I can't deny it. But you know, hopefully, you understand where I'm coming from. Like, I, the thing is, it's like when I'm in the cinema as well. I don't like somebody who's sat behind me. Yeah, I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> Because you're also the guy that when you are, you're the guy that when someone is overpassing you, you also accelerate. You know, everyone who drives, you know, when you are overpassing someone and they're going slowly, and suddenly the moment you are overpassing them is the moment that they decide to accelerate and start to go faster and not let and not let you overpass them. So it's not about the people behind you; it's the people all around you. Okay, well, if you're going to have a somewhat of a go at me. Let's talk about what I was originally going to talk about, which was you and your windscreen wipers phobia. It's not a phobia, it's just an irrational fear. Explain. Well, I think this is more common than what you give credit for. I don't think so. But, you know, I'm a very secure person, I'm a confident person, I don't particularly care about what people, particularly what people I don't know think about me, Yeah. but I have this irrational fear that people are judging me by the speed of my windscreen wipers. So basically, you know when you see someone and it's just drizzling <laughs> and they have their windscreen wipers like going full speed, like drum, 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 like full speed. <laughs> you are so weird. I don't want to be that person because I look at them and I judge them because of the speed of their windscreen wipers. So I don't want to be judged for the same thing. 
sorry, but that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Everyone has, to some extent, an irrational fear. Mine is that one, and I can assure you that I'm not the only one. <laughs> well, I think we'll, we'll put it out. We'll put it out. We'll put it out to the listeners. I'm sorry. Can we just stop there? <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I love you with all my heart, but the whole windscreen wiper thing—I just don't understand it. That you're sat there, and you know you are petrified of like upping the ante on your windscreen wipers because somebody might. I mean, what do you think that somebody is going to think of you if you've got them going really quickly and it's it's only like a bit of spitting and a mild rain? It's psychopathic. It's like people are going to think I'm a flipping psycho if I have like my full speed windscreen wiper. Well, people are thinking of that already. The fact that you're concerned about it. Well, but they don't know I'm concerned about it. Well, you've just shared it on the podcast to the entire world, and I'm sure that we're going to find people who have. The same, the exact same irrational right. fear. Okay, if you are listening to this and you have the same irrational fear as Ben Hur, in that you <laughs> worry about what people think your windscreen wiper movements are like, then please get in touch with us. We are at Twitter at BarebackPod. Please do message us on Instagram at BarebackPodcast. Or you can find us on Facebook, just search us Bareback. Or you can also write us an email to confirm. That is an actual thing to be fearful of being judged by the speed of your windscreen <laughs> wipers. By even saying it, it just sounds so ridiculous. And you, you're laughing as well as you say it. You, because you're laughing. Can you not tell how ridiculous this is? You can you can confirm that irrational fear or tell, <laughs> or tell us about your irrational fear, particularly whilst driving. <laughs> you can do it sending us an email at barebackpodcast at gmail.com. Well, I think you'll find that most people are just going to respond that you are literally out of your mind. <laughs> I, I just think it's the most silliest thing ever. You are the only person in the world who thinks about this. I can pretty much guarantee it. In fact, I would be willing to walk to a betting shop now and put money on it that we are not going to hear from anybody in you- the next seven days before we record the next episode who has the same thought as you you will lose there is people we are out there wish 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 okay well i'm gonna go now and uh, try and calm down because i like i knew about this but the more we talk about it it's just ridiculous like just even you saying it out loud and being really really serious about it so would you like me to sing you the wheels on the bus go round and round why? Because the wipers on the bus go swish, 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 swish. The wipers on the bus go swish, swish, swish. And the bus oh. driver goes fuck off. How dare you introduce swear words into a classic children's song? I mean, you deserved it. You're being a bitch. <laughs> well, I'm going to continue being a bitch then, and I'm going to be taking the piss out of you all day long. Swish, swish, swish. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> 